Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There are a few a few flagship deals that you could do quite quickly but i think a lot of this is going to be grinding over time in terms of um getting negotiations underway hello and welcome to free exchange i'm john ashmore the editor of capex it's the brexit election at least according to some broadcasters. Yet we've had relatively little scrutiny of what getting Brexit done actually means if Boris Johnson does win his cherished majority. To shine a light on the next phase of negotiations, I caught up with one of the key players involved in putting together the original withdrawal agreement. Raoul Ruparel spent two years as special advisor to then-Brexit Secretary David Davis, followed by a year in 10 Downing Street as Theresa May's special advisor on Europe. I began by asking him if he was surprised that Boris Johnson managed to land his deal back in October. So, Raoul, you spent three years at the kind of heart of the Brexit negotiations. I mean, were you surprised that they managed to land a deal right at the end of October in that way? Well, I think it looked quite unlikely for quite a long time. Uh, But obviously, as I wrote uh, near the time in an article in Politico, I think there was a small window uh, around the deal they eventually got, uh, and a lot of credit to the negotiators and to the government for moving quickly to to land uh, land it in that window. Um, but uh, you know, yes, for a long time, I think both myself and lots of people thought it was unlikely they'd get a deal. So they did they did well to get there in the end. How much of a gap do you think there is from you working inside the negotiations to what's often reported about the progress of talks? outside by the likes of us in the media? I mean, I think it's, you know, during, during my time in the negotiations, actually there was quite a lot of stuff leaking out. Um, and, you know, it was often selective. Um, you know, both sides would do bits of briefing. I think the EU side, um, you know, were quite effective at using briefings and getting stuff out into the media to apply pressure to the UK side. So when they wanted something to be public, it became public and and they leveraged that quite well. Uh, And, you know, that was effective uh, in terms of their strategy. I don't think it was necessarily something which being the other side table engendered good faith and and made the negotiations any easier. But, you know, as a negotiator, you can sort of respect that they they are doing that for a particular reason to try and leverage their position. So there were times where it was... 
you know, quite accurate in terms of what was going on. And there's quite a lot of um, detail out there in the media uh, in terms of how the negotiations were progressing. But at, at certain key points, you know, we entered what is known as the tunnel, where both sides are working earnestly in and seriously in and basically nonstop to try and make progress to get past a certain milestone quite often or to get a certain bit of, of the detail or text locked down. And I think in those periods, both sides were quite good at, you know, respecting the... Um, confidence of the negotiations and not letting stuff leak out and so often actually you know when it seemed like there wasn't going to be progress um, you know actually there was stuff being done and progress being made in the tunnel and then you know a milestone was reached or a deal was reached uh, and things got done that maybe came as a bit more of a surprise and we saw that as we've just sort of said at the end of end of um, the current negotiations and getting the deal done I think lots of people were skeptical um, but you know they they entered the tunnel and were able to get it over the line in terms of you know what happened in Brussels. But how conducive is that style of working in that very intense way to getting you know, a well-ordered document at the end of it? Um, I mean, it has its pluses and it mi- its minuses. I think it tends to only work when you have quite a small negotiating team on both sides. Um, so it's good for intense parts of negotiation uh, and to try and lock down key issues and specific problems but it's not necessarily something you can do for a very broad negotiation and it's not something you can necessarily do for the whole negotiation um, because you need to have much more wide-ranging discussions with different people different teams and on different issues so um, it has its place and and I think it's something that needs to be used but I'm not sure it's necessarily how you should run the whole negotiation Uh, and it's it's um, obviously I think there are there are questions as well about transparency and openness and accountability in terms of going back to parliament going back to select committees and and all of this and making sure that you're bringing people domestically with you and and obviously we've seen that quite clearly that in the end you know both Theresa May and and Boris Johnson were unable to get the deal through parliament um and you know you can question whether at various points I I guess particularly under the previous government if people had been brought along a bit more whether that might have been different who knows if it would have been, but I do think um, you need to think about that when you're structuring your negotiations about how you bring both people in Parliament and wider stakeholders with you as you go through those negotiations. I mean, yeah, I mean, coming on from that, um, how much does it weigh on both sets of negotiators thinking, well, we could you know, work our asses off on this and then end up with something that MPs just reject? Well, I think it weighed very heavily on the EU side. Um, you know, obviously it was on it was it was weighed on our side as well, but we sort of just had to do the best we could. I think, but we saw at numerous points during the negotiations where the EU were very hesitant to make further concessions as they saw it, or further shifts without any guarantees that it could get through Parliament. You know, and it sort of they saw it as okay if they make a concession, um, the UK side takes it, tries to get it through Parliament, fails and then says, OK, we need more concessions. So they see it as a sort of path, a slippery slope towards further concessions. So they were always very cautious about that. And I think there's questions about going into the next phase, and you know, if, if that happens, depending obviously on the election result, but if we get into the next phase of negotiations, questions about whether um, you try and get some um, parliamentary approval for the approach beforehand to try and demonstrate that there is support... You know, obviously, the EU had its mandate from the European Council uh, and had a very clear set of guidelines that it was working to and within, and therefore it felt, you know, it, in some ways it knew what it could do, but also what it couldn't do. Uh, that that gave it a sense of 
uh, clear direction, but obviously also had constraints in that sometimes it felt it couldn't go beyond its mandate. So um, a lot of thought needs to go into how to structure these things, particularly going forward. I do think that's, I was going to ask you, what do you think the big takeaways are from your time negotiating in terms of how we now move towards a trade agreement? Well, I think there's there's lots of lessons to be learned from the first phase. And I think, um, you know, myself and others are, are, are digesting and thinking about how to look at the next phase. I think a key one is is the structure of the negotiations and how you, um, you know, how you structure it to try and achieve what you want to achieve. You know, obviously, we've seen the sequencing of negotiations, particularly in the, fir- the first phase. And, you know, actually, the separation between the first and second phase came from the sequencing that the EU wanted. Uh, and I think that has ended up um, creating problems. And, um, you know, we've seen that it's meant that Northern Ireland had to be brought forward and you find a complete solution separate from the entire future relationship. Um, and that has proved, obviously, to be a huge sticking point in the negotiation. So uh, I think going into the next phase, the UK government needs to think very carefully about how it wants to structure those negotiations, um, how it wants to approach them in terms of what's dealt with when and, and how the, the agreements are structured um, so that it, you know, it makes sure it, it makes the best of its points of leverage, its points of um, negotiating power, and also make sure that it doesn't just suit exactly... Um, what the EU wants and I think you know they've been quite effective in terms of the structure of negotiations and setting up leverage points I think of sufficient progress and other things that they use to apply pressure to the UK side. Do you think that's a matter of experience on in the sense that the EU are very used to doing these sorts of negotiations and perhaps we're not as a government? I think there's an element of that certainly they're, they're very used to uh, as you say, doing trade negotiations, running these kinds of, of negotiations in numerous rounds and thinking about how to tie it in with a communication strategy, um, a public a public strategy, but also thinking about what their key points of leverage are. So they do have more experience in that. I think it's also, you know, as has been well documented, I think um, on the UK side, you know, maybe the triggering of Article 50 was a bit rushed and so that we hadn't properly or fully... Um, you know, thought about what the best structure of negotiations would be um, and ended up agreeing to their sequencing, which which suited them. There's also obviously the fact that we had the 2017 election and coming off the back of it, you know, the UK government was then, if you remember, it wasn't clear how long it would survive, you know, whether it was a matter of days, weeks or years at that point in time. And so going in, having an initial fight about the structure of negotiations, which could have led to the whole thing stalling immediately, um, you know whether that would have would have been sustainable for the government at the time is 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 unclear. So there are lots of reasons why it, it didn't necessarily happen that way in the first phase. But I think in the second phase, it's something that needs to be taken account of. And are you surprised at how little? Um, there's been some people who have scrutinised it very carefully, but generally speaking, how little scrutiny there has been of Boris Johnson's deal compared to what preceded it. Well, I think obviously lots of it is the same. You know, I think 95% of it is is the same as the previous deal. And really, it's only two key clauses or or, or, uh, parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol which have changed. Obviously, that's had a a substantial impact in in the material way it, it works for Northern Ireland and what it means for our union. There has been some scrutiny. I think, obviously, look, it, it's been rushed, so select committees haven't had time to report and do proper um, proper investigations into it. Um, and, you know, it became clear very quickly that um, it probably wasn't going to get through Parliament, and so we were then into discussion about an election quite quickly. So um, maybe it didn't get the scrutiny it, it deserved, and, and without the passage of the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, which would have been the vehicle for that scrutiny, I think, in particular, um, you know, there, there hasn't been as much as, as maybe on the on the previous deal. 
Um, but you know, obviously, it, there, there will be time to do that when when it when the new parliament is formed. Uh, but depending on how that parliament looks, you know, the, the level of scrutiny could uh, could be quite different. Yeah, do you think it's fair to say that it's to Boris Johnson's advantage if he's looking at it within the context of a Conservative majority <laughs> rather than a uh, hung parliament? Certainly, I think you know if he if he gets a majority, then um, he will not be facing some of the sort of amendments or, or scrutiny procedures he might have been facing otherwise. And I think there's a question of some of the things they were looking at in the withdrawal agreement bill in terms of the scrutiny of the next phase, you know, how the government comes to its mandates, what the role for Parliament is and select committees in, in helping to feed into that mandate and any votes on that, that mandate and, re- and the reporting during the negotiations. Now, with a large majority, it, it may be easier for the government to actually do away with some of those procedures and, and proceed ahead with, therefore, less scrutiny. Uh, I don't know if that's what they'll do, but it's, it's certainly not inconceivable. I mean, looking ahead to... The next phase, obviously, nobody knows exactly how it's going to pan out. But do you think that this idea that we can get a trade deal done by the end of next year is a realistic timetable? Well, I think it's look, it's incredibly challenging by any uh, sort of historical standard in terms of trade deals. The one thing I would say is that it really depends exactly on the type of trade deal you're going for. And that there is, of course, a trade-off between speed and the complexity and depth of, of the deal. Um, but I, I don't necessarily sign up to the view that it's inconceivable you could get a trade deal done. Um, you know, it, it is possible you could get one done, and, and you know, we have the outlines of it in the political declaration. But it would probably be quite a, a narrow and quite a shallow trade deal rather than a particularly comprehensive one. Uh, so it's just a question of what you're really aiming for and what you think your priorities are. And we also shouldn't forget this is not just about a trade deal. You know, that's one part of it, but not even, I would say, a majority of it. You know, we have security, both internal and external, to negotiate um, foreign policy. We have, um, you know, stuff on data, energy, transport agreements, including aviation, which is crucial for the UK. Um, you know, all of these areas where um, that, that, that would sit outside a standard FTA that also have to be negotiated and have to think about what the agreements would look like there and how they would be ratified. Do you think that it might be, again, without trying to predict too much what a future government will do, but it might be to their advantage to sort of hive off those areas? from the trade elements and say, right, we're going to do this specific trade bit now and we can roll over the other things and negotiate on them later? So it's possible they could try that. I guess the question is, once the, you know, as, once the transition period comes to an end at the end of um, 2020, you're then into basically a sort of no-deal scenario for these other areas. So the question is, can you try and, could you seek to try and partially extend the transition period to keep those things uh, actually on the status quo? Um, that's, you know, in, in some areas there is the current withdrawal agreement provides for sort of partial um, exit from the implementation period, but I think only in foreign and security policy. Um, and so you would probably have to try and renegotiate that part of the treaty, which becomes very tricky. You could try and get some other agreements in place temporarily to hold things the same and then uh, and then try and get in more longer-term agreements over time. Now, that, again, is, I think, you know, I guess in theory possible, though the EU might argue what it was able to do under, legally able to do under Article 50 in terms of keeping an entire standstill on these issues. It's no longer able to legally do once Article 50 falls away and the UK is a third country. So 
you know, there will be difficulties on that. And I think that's going to be a key question is, is for the government. It's not just what it wants to do on the FTA, but it, what it wants to do on all these other things. And then you have a question of sort of negotiating strategy. You know, is it beneficial to separate them out? Is it beneficial to keep them tied together? And all of that kind of uh, discussion and consideration. So, um, you know, these are all things that actually need to be answered before you even think about starting to negotiate. So there's a lot of work to be done. What's your sense on the, on the European side? We talk a lot about the British side, understandably, and sometimes the debate seems a little bit parochial here in terms of how kind of weary they are of the whole process. And I'm thinking in the context of various parties effectively promising at this election to extend the Brexit process even further. Do you think people in Brussels will be tearing their hair out at, at that prospect? So I think certainly there are lots of them who are very weary of it, like like many of us here on this side. Um, but, uh, you know, they definitely, um, I think, you know, th- there were some early on who would like to have seen the UK stay in the EU and and see the, the referendum result overturned. But I think that view has, has dwindled over time. Um, there are obviously still some people, you know, Donald Tusk, who's the outgoing sort of European Council president, um, has been very clear in his desire to see the UK stay, but I'm not sure that is any more a particularly widely shared view. Uh, and I think quite a lot of countries actually would would rather just see this done and see, um, you know, the UK move on and then the EU be able to move on as well. That being said, though, I think if push came to shove and there was going to be a second, you know, if there was a majority for a second referendum or something in this country in in the new parliament, I think in the end they would probably allow for an extension for that to happen because they wouldn't want to be seen to sort of uh, limiting the democratic choices of, of the UK. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I mean, we talked just then about um, the political declaration being the kind of the outline for the future trade agreement. If How much 
Um, is that a skeleton? How much can we read into that in terms of you know what that deal might look like? Do you think? Well, there are some useful you know sort of guide points in there. You know, zero tariffs, zero quotas, for example, gives you quite a, a, an initial sense. But a lot of it is quite high level, um, you know, and some of it is quite unambitious. If you take, for example, what's in there on on services and financial services in particular, it's it's quite basic equivalents that already exists within EU regulations. Not not much more than that. Um, I also think the political declaration can quite easily be changed, built on, you know, or, or, or moved away from. So I, I would say it's it's a useful guide in some places but i don't think it's something that will be stuck to religiously in the next phase of negotiations i think what will really um set out the guidelines will be the mandate that is given to the european commission in terms of its negotiations and we'll see that probably early next year or spring um next year and that that will really provide a clearer sense of of where the eu is willing to go in these negotiations um, do you have any concern looking at the way the kind of election is being framed this big slogan about getting Brexit done, that people will be disappointed when they realise how much is ahead? I think it's certainly a risk. I mean, you can see why um, why that's an attractive message and why, you know, if you're in, in the campaign, you, you want to go on it. You know, we, we, you know I've been there before and uh, I can see why they're, why they're doing it. And certainly it seems to be having some cut through. But I think there is a risk that people people will be will be disappointed um, when they realise there is there is still more time to go and more negotiation to be done. Uh, that being said, I guess, you know, whatever happens, even if, you know, you extend the transition period a bit, the timeline between the end of the transition period and the next election is still going to be quite significant. And so I think if you are in the end, will people care that, um, you know, it took a bit longer to get out or, or a bit longer to get the future relationship in place uh, than promised at this election by the time the next election comes around, if it's been in place for some time? You know, I'm not sure actually that in terms of political costs, I'm not sure it's huge, but I do think... Um, there is a sense of, uh, uh, you know, at some points you do need to uh, prepare people and particularly prepare business for for how long this, this might take. And a kind of related risk, perhaps, that ultimately when we do this deal, we, will, we might well still be aligned in various ways to the European Union. So this kind of carrot that we've dangled in front of people of a kind of relatively clean separation might prove to be a lot sort of stickier than that. Yeah, I think so. And it's, you know, it's certainly I think, you know, whether people really understand the, the transition and that, you know, actually the day after we leave, nothing's going to have changed, really. Um, and we'll still uh, we'll still be look like we're in the EU for, for all intents and purposes. So uh, things will stay very similar for that year and, and potentially longer, as we've discussed. Uh, so that might come as a surprise to some people. You know, obviously, we can start negotiating uh, and signing and ratifying international deals. Uh, they won't be able to come into force until we've left the transition period, but we can make headway on, on getting them in place. So that is, that is certainly something that is a positive and, I guess, one of the things that people might want to see and, and which we won't really won't necessarily be held back from doing. Um, but, yeah, I think in terms of people sort of thinking things are going to feel and look different, you know, they probably they, they will. They won't really on, on day one and, and for the immediate near future. I mean, we've been... Um, I, certainly, I've been quite sceptical thus far about what... Um you know, a trade deal might entail. But, uh, I mean, what do you see as the actual big opportunities that arise from our new status? 
Well, I think it's something that's probably likely material to materialise over the longer term. Um, you know, I think as we look at sort of economies developing, um, obviously particularly China, India, and um, some of the other large emerging economies, there are potentially growing, particularly services markets that the UK could tap into as having expertise there. Um, and there is also an opportunity, I guess, uh, as we go forward and regulate in new areas, particularly in data and digital and things like that, where you could probably be a bit more flexible and a bit more nimble than the EU would have been. Um, but I think those, you know, generally, are, I think the, op- the opportunities take a bit of time to materialise. But I think in the longer term, as, as the way we trade and the way economies trade change, um, there, will be, there will be opportunities to exploit there. Another thing that's featured heavily in this campaign is the sort of spectre of a, quote, Trump trade deal. Um, how, how realistic do you think is that we, we could get a trade deal relatively quickly with the US? Because it might not even be Trump in the White House by the time we do it. Well, I think, you know, obviously, notwithstanding the uncertainty about the US election, that will have a, have a big, big impact on it. But again, a lot comes down to what you want to see in that trade deal. You know, if we're talking about quite a, quite a narrow and simple trade deal when we only sort of maybe deal with industrial goods tariffs um, between the two sides, that would be quite, you know, quite quick and, and relatively easy to strike, I think. Um, now, whether the US would be in the market for that, I don't know. It might suit both sides politically just to get something done quickly and to say, yeah, actually, we've been able to do this deal. Uh, I think the economic benefit of such a deal would be relatively limited, but it would be, I could see why it'd be a useful symbol to get it done and then try and build on it over time. If you wanted to go for something more comprehensive, I think you then could run into you run into quite a difficult negotiation. We've seen how Trump negotiates, and you know it's certainly America first. Uh, and I think particularly when you start getting into agricultural areas, which is is sensitive for both sides, as we've already seen with, you know, the the endless chlorine chicken debate. Um, but I think, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think even moving past that kind of. Uh, high level and uh, look, I think misleading in many cases debate you know it's clear that our agricultural sector is is quite sensitive it's it's not particularly profitable um, it's used to being subsidized and exposing it opening it to a, a new wealth of competition uh, from the from the US um, could have quite a significant impact so you know we're with something that have to be very carefully considered and calibrated in any trade negotiation but obviously one of the things the US is very likely to want to see is a significant opening of the agricultural market so um, that's going to be a very an area of, of a lot of tension there if if we get into that and and that is harder to see being done quickly or easily do you think there's a way from a more political sort of strategic point of view, do you think there's a way that the Tories could just put a, put a lid on this whole they're going to sell off the NHS line? So it's it's quite possible you could get a clause inserted into any trade agreement that makes clear that's not possible. And I, I don't think it's a realistic threat uh, in any case, so getting that clause in there um, is not necessarily a problem. And, you know, there, there have been, um, I think, you know, when the EU was looking at negotiations with the US, there, there were similar mentions inserted into some of the documents to try and protect the, the EU against, you know, the idea that certain public services and particularly health services might come under come under attack from the US. So I think it's it's possible whether that would be sufficient to knock knock the debate on its head and shut it down i don't know because um it's one of those debates that are seen 
seems to have grown beyond the the, the mere facts and has become more of a sort of just slogan uh, yeah. and not dealing with with some of the realities on the ground. So it's a sort of risk that you kind of that, that you're playing on Labour's turf if you even allow the possibility. That... Yeah, well, exactly. I think if you if you put the clause in there it sort of suggests that without that clause, actually you were planning to do it. When right, yeah. the reality is it, the clause is probably redundant and is just there as, as, as sort of making it absolutely explicit to, to sort of meet the demands of people um, uh, or people who have those concerns. But yeah, I think you know, you're, you're right that it, it may play into their hands even going down that path. And obviously if you try and then for, for whatever reason don't manage to get the clause, then, then you're obviously uh, in, in trouble, even though it was a clause which you may have just set out to be symbolic rather than actually have any meaning. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the whole debate and the chlorine chicken stuff. And it speaks to something a bit more, um, a quite a pervasive problem, which is that the gap between experts such as yourself and we've had your former colleagues from Open Europe on the podcast quite a few times. I'm always struck by the level of detail that they know compared to what even MPs seem to know is just staggeringly higher. Yeah, I think it's, you know, particularly around trade issues, there is a a lack of expertise and a lack of knowledge, partly because it's something we've not necessarily dealt with a huge amount in the past, you know, few decades. And maybe it's something MPs aren't used to having to, um, you know, deal with constituents and local concerns about those issues as much. Um, so I think it will take time to build up that level of expertise and understanding. Um, but yes, it is, it is frustrating. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not just something we see in the UK. You know, we've seen it in other countries around some of the deals that EU has done. Um, you know, we've seen concerns around TTIP in, in the you know, potential US deal in other countries. We saw concerns around the Ukraine deal in, in the Netherlands and things like that. So, you know, it's it's not an isolated incident here. I think it's something that lots of other countries are, are struggling with as well. And on the, on the trade deal front, I mean, how, in terms of the kind of architecture of government, when you were at Dexu, was that, how much involvement was there with the trade department in terms of what they were doing? Were they kind of off on their own, kind of doing a, essentially a PR job while you were dealing with the nuts and bolts? Well, there was certainly quite a, a lot of overlap, I guess, particularly in terms of the messaging and the high level and decisions, because ultimately decisions you make about the UK-EU relationship will have an impact on you know, what, what, we, what the UK can then do in terms of deals with other countries. And so I think, you know, rightly... DIT is always concerned that you know whatever is done on the EU side does not you know have an impact or or, or have an impact they don't expect on what they can do in their deals. So I think it's about making sure that the two sides of the coin are joined up. And I think you know again coming into the next phase, it will be important that decision making about how we go into the next phase and and what that future relationship with the EU looks like um, that those decisions are taken you know, with a view to what we want to do with other countries as well, um, and that they go hand in hand. Do you have a view, um, I mean, the government has indicated already certain countries it would like to deal with, with, but do you think there are certain countries that will be easier to do deals with and ought to be a priority so that the government can say, this is all assuming the Tories get a majority, Mm -hmm. the government can say, oh, look, we've signed five trade deals this year or, or something like this? Yeah, well, I think, look, there there are the obvious countries. I think Australia and New Zealand are likely to be easier to do deals with, and those are things that can progress quite quickly. 
Um, you know, I think there are potentials, there is potential to do a deal with India, but you will very quickly get into quite a tricky area about visas and immigration. And so I think the question there is what the political scope is to do that kind of deal and the willingness from any government. Um, so, you know, and then there's there's um, other bits and pieces, obviously the US deal. Um, but I think it's something that there are a few a few flagship deals that you could do quite quickly but i think a lot of this is going to be grinding over time in terms of um getting negotiations underway um but also we shouldn't forget it's not just about these flagship headline trade deals it's about other trade agreements and maybe sectoral agreements or mutual recognition agreements um or even underlying commercial agreements that the, the governments help facilitate um which will help foster trade so um i think we also need to try and move away from just having the expectation of these big bang massive free trade agreements we need to make people understand and, and, and I guess businesses also understand that there are opportunities from doing smaller, lower level agreements that sit underneath these FTAs. Yeah, I mean, do you think there's a risk that people have put too many eggs in the, tr- in the free trade basket in terms of expectation when actually there's lots of things we could do here as a, as a you know, sovereign country um, that would improve our own productivity, that would improve pre- people's standards of living that have actually relatively little to do with rules and regulations and services agreements and that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's right. I mean, you know, when you think of some of the biggest sort of economic challenges or, or challenges facing this country, it's hard to imagine that trade or trade deals are really going to solve many of them. You mentioned one in productivity, um, but, you know, concern around provision of public services and, and other things, I think, are things which should be higher up on the list in terms of um, dealing with them, you know, and using, hopefully, once we're through sort of Brexit, which is eating up a lot of capacity in government, once we're through that, using this additional capacity and, and time to focus on other things, I would I would think they're a higher priority than the trade deals. Um, so, and it's also something which I think, you know, while it's, it's very popular in government and in parliament with MPs, it's not really something that registers with, with voters that much, you know. Yes, if you ask them, they like the idea of it. But I think if you look at the issues they raise, it's very rarely high on high on the agenda. Um, so I think it's something that actually the, the politics also suggests, you know, um, resources should also be invested el- elsewhere. Now, it's not necessarily an either or, but if you're thinking what your focus should be on and, and where you really need to put your resources, you, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be top of my list. Mm. I mean, have you, you talked about voters kind of, concerns there are you now you're not in the sort of spad world are you able to get out and about on the campaign trail and that kind of thing <laughs> well I've, I've been avoided getting on the campaign trail i think i'm still scarred from last time right okay. um, but um yeah you are able to talk a bit more freely and um engage with people a bit more and uh whereas obviously when you're a spad you're always very cautious about doing that and you know i think you need to be uh, a bit more circumspect so it, it's good to be able to have these more open conversations go to conferences and uh, and go out and meet people uh and uh, yeah and try and get get a sense of of their concerns so you know it's uh, yeah it's it, you're able to do things slightly differently and because you're i think people obviously take a different approach to you as well because you're not seen as an arm of the government or, or you know just towing the government line in in many ways and just to finish off with um we asked pretty much everyone this over the last month, but do you have a cautious prediction? Well, I think you're yeah, very cautious. At the moment, you know, all the data seems to be pointing to a conservative majority. I would say it's likely to be smaller than people are expecting. So I would think, you know, maybe 10 or 15 seats. 
I think we're seeing, though, a lot of uncertainty because there are a lot of voters who haven't yet decided which way they're going to go, and there are a lot of voters who are still sort of floating and switching between parties. So, um, you know, a lot can change, and there's still a long way to go. But at the moment, I think it's looking looking relatively good for the for the Conservatives. Yeah, I think it's fair to say the scars of 2017 are still there in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. Well, Raul, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.